Hey, it's your pal Mike Shea from Sly Flourish, here with another episode of the Lazy D&D Talk Show. In this weekly show, I talk about all things D&D. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. If you want to help me out or help make more shows like this, you can do so by becoming a patron of Sly Flourish, going to patreon.com slash slyflourish and signing up. Patrons get access to all kinds of exclusive content. They get previews of videos, previews of upcoming material, but most of all, they help support shows like this. So I have a lot of interesting things to talk about today. So we got some special, some special stuff to talk about today. Let's look, let's look at our notes. So the first one is, if you recall, a few episodes back, I did a review of a virtual tabletop called Vorpal Board. And Vorpal Board lets you set up your phone as a camera on your physical board, physical table. So you can show physical accessories and still run a game with your friends. And really cool. And I, I saw it because I saw that the Dwarven Forge folks were using it. Dwarven Forge makes the probably the best tabletop terrain you can get for running any kind of tabletop RPG, probably mostly fantasy RPG. And, you know, for people like me who have a lot of Dwarven Forge, it's a real shame to have all this Dwarven Forge and not be able to use it when you're playing online. And, and so Vorpal Board showed a way to do that. But one of the things that Vorpal Board showed also or got me thinking about was, do you actually need a camera on the board or can you just use an image? Can you take a picture of it? So I, I played around with this this week and I actually used it in a game and I wanted to I wanted to show this off and show how it works. So we're going to switch uh, screens here. Whoops. Go to my browser window. Look at that. All kinds of new stuff. Maybe we'll shrink down this part of it just a little bit. We don't need a great big Mike Shea head. This is Albert Rodeo. Albert Rodeo is my favorite virtual tabletop because it is really dirt simple to use. Players like it a lot. It's just it it just works it just works really well. It requires no login. It requires no login from either players or DMs. It is an excellent tool. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna uh, just start a game, not worry about a password, and I'm going to create a new map. And I have some pictures that I took. And so we're gonna show one off. So we'll start with a hallway. So what I did is I, I built a Dwarven Forge setup and I took a picture. And I took a picture of it using like a three quarter layout rather than a, I think we're gonna make this like a 20 by 15. What, what happened there? When the number of columns disappeared. Oh, look at that. You can. Turn off the scaling, show grid controls. See what that does. I don't know, that's gonna be weird. And you can drop a picture of your Dwarven Forge in there. What happens if I drop a token? Oh, hey, that, works. that works fine. So what you can do is uh, throw in a three quarter view of a Dwarven Forge setup and drop your characters uh, right in as tokens, right? Uh, I'm making the hallway like a little bit bigger than it might be if you were to put like actual if you were to put like actual miniatures on it, and then we can throw like like we can say there's some ice trolls in there. Make this like a ten foot, right? And so you can use Dwarven Forge, right? And I, all I did was make a little Dwarven Forge setup on my on my on my desktop, and or I made a little Dwarven Forge setup. I took a picture with my phone, nice high res picture with my phone, and saved it and threw it into into Albear. And I think it actually works really well. Like it it definitely gives this more like Final Fantasy style view. If you want to get all gritty, you know, you can still figure out your distances to things, right? But you don't have to worry about the grid too much. And actually, I, I don't know if I did this, 
but I'm going to turn off snap to grid, right? Because the grid is not going to line up. Uh, and that way the, the, to the tokens move smooth and it works, it works really well. So like that is, you know, that's one example of it. Let's, let's show a couple others. Let's, let's do another one. Uh, let's do a fancy, we'll do a fancy one here. I like this one. This one's kind of cool. And we're going to do like a 25 by 20. You kind of have to play with the grid to figure out like about how big it is. And if you see, like I didn't bother building an outer wall, right? I said, we're going to do like a three quarter, a three quarter wall, right? And that, and that should work well enough. And, and, and I think it works fine. It's a little, you know, it kind of shows off a little, so that's probably a little too big, right? You can see that like the token in that size is, you know, that's significantly bigger than like, or the, the, the token is smaller than it ought to be. So we're going to, we're going to reduce the grid. Whoops. And we're going to drop it to like, a, I guess we'll try 20, 20 by 15. That looks good. Right? Yeah. Now that now the, the tokens look about the same, the, about the right size. And you could say like, you know, your frost druid is way up here on the top of the pillar. You get a nice like 3D view, right? Like, you know, let's say you have a frost druid and she's being protected by a couple of ice trolls, right? And then you have your tokens for your, your characters. And in Owlbear, you have, everybody has full control over the, over the setup, right? And then if you want to get fancy and you say like, well, I cast an aura, you can, you can drop an, um, you know, like a flaming aura on it, right? Let's say they cast like a, I don't know, some kind of thing. And they can drop the flaming aura. Now, obviously, like the aura doesn't fit the isometric nature. Uh, and I don't think there's a way to like, yeah, there's not really a way to, 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 to do the other one. Maybe use an editor to remove the background of the room. Yeah, so that I, I thought about that. I thought about like, you know, probably taking a picture on more of the white background instead of like maps and then using an image editor to slice it out. You know, I think that that would actually, that, that would actually work pretty well. On the other hand, it's also kind of fun to like see the tabletop, right? Like you're playing on a tabletop again. So I'm not so sure. I don't, you know, it, it might be too sterile otherwise i kind of don't mind it being a little being a little messy but you know look look at all my cool glowy bits like look look at my lighting effects right hey look i got special 3d rendered lighting effects you know why because it's real light <laughs> so you know i got my little torches on the walls like look wow look at those glowy light effects right it's like yeah it's real that's why it works so yeah there's a lot of lot of cool oh, let's try one more just for fun See if I can. I'll do a real big one. I'll do the one that I did. Let's see. I think I still have this one, right? I think this is the one I did on my Wednesday game. And let's, yeah, 24 by, it thinks it's 24 by 14. Let's find out, right? A great big long one. This one's got like, you know, a big step up. It's the, the step up's not the easiest thing to see. This, this picture might not be the best. This is actually the one I, I used in my, in my Wednesday game. It's probably a little, in this case, I think it's a little too big, right? I think that 24 was, was a little too big. So we're going to, or yeah, the, the grid size isn't enough. So we're going to uh, tweak this and do 30 by 17, 18. That looks good. Let's try that. Let's drop a, drop a dude down there. That's, yeah, that's better, right? So same kind of thing. In this case, you have like a great big, you know, long battle, kind of a two-stager, you know, where again, you might put like a, a boss up on a tower and you know have a nice have a nice layout so i thought this was a really fun way to be able to use you know 3d terrain like dwarven forge and still uh have players kind of have fun using it with a token so i really like this idea i thought it was a good time
being able to take a picture, being able to enjoy your Dwarven Forge, set up nice Dwarven Forge stuff. And here's here's another cool thing about it that I that I kind of like. Let me let me bring in another one real quick. Although I don't want to spend too much time on this. So I showed like that tower. I showed the tower that had the big thing. Well, this is the pretty much the same room with just some different effects. So now I, I took the tower away, I took away the big glowy floor and I put a big doorway on the side, right? So I can make a bunch of rooms with different features really quickly and, and mothball them, kind of stick them in a directory. And then when I need sort of a chamber like this, I can just go grab it. So like the difference between this chamber and this chamber, it's actually the same, most of it is the same, right? And all I did was alter a couple of pieces of it. But it looks like a very different room, right? It, it, it changes a lot. So with like changing like three or four pieces, I can make a whole different room, which means I can set up a bunch of like chambers and then, you know, throw different sort of major features of that chamber around, build an entirely new chamber, but it's only, it takes me like three minutes. And so I could build like 10 rooms in, you know, a half hour, take the pictures and stash them and then put all the Dwarven Forge away. I don't need the Dwarven Forge on the table anymore because I've got my pictures. So I think it's a really fun way to make beautiful maps that for, for my friends where we like to play with Dwarven Forge is a way for me to a way for me to do this. Mestigar asks, Mike, can you make these available to Patreon? I would very much like to. I want to be a little careful. I, I did reach out to Dwarven Forge to ask them how they would feel about that. I don't think there's any legal reason I can't. It's not like the IP is, is there. But I don't want to step on their toes by offering a commercially available set of pictures like this so I want to be a little I want to be a little careful but yeah I own the terrain and it's my own picture I know I get it and and I don't again it's not it's not a matter of like legality it's just like I just I would I would feel better I work I've, I've worked with those guys in the past I like them very much they they you know they're familiar with my work and they they know this stuff so I would I would like to hear from them that yeah they don't have any problem with me offering that up for Patreon I don't think like I'd put it in a package and sell it on Drive Through RPG that would definitely be weird but offering it as a perk for patrons I would very much like to do I just want to make sure that you know they're not surprised right i don't want them to, to be surprised and like wait a minute why are you doing that so i'm just asking i'm asking them if that if they would have any issue with that yeah i don't think nate uh, nate's a good guy and i've talked to him before so but i also would understand if they're like well i don't know that's a little weird right we're not sure we want to do that yet because the idea of offering commercial versions of our stuff is a little weird because you know they might want to do something like this so i don't know We'll, we'll hear. I'll, I'll hear back. In the meantime, you know, what I, I, I think, like, for people who are interested in getting into Dwarven Forge, but, you know, like, I use a VTT, this is a way you could do it. And you could also do it with a smaller amount of Dwarven Forge because you can do this idea of, like, using the same couple sets to build a, bu a bunch of different variants, save those variants, and build out an entire dungeon from those variants. Anyway, I thought that was cool. And I wanted to share. So, I'm as you know, or some, as some people know, I've been taking questions from Patreon about how, you know, just questions about D&D from Patreon and then turning those into topics for discussion for this show or doing small YouTube videos about them. I shot a couple of YouTube videos based on Patreon questions last week. They should be up in the next couple of weeks or so. So Jason S. from, from the Sly Flourish Patreon asks, Numenera. He wants to know about Numenera and why I love the Cypher system. And I thought, why not review Numenera? So let's take a deep dive as deep a dive as I do into what I think may be my favorite RPG, Numenera. I don't play it nearly enough. 
but I wish I did. So I'm going to be talking about Numenera. I'm, I'm picking one particular book called Numenera Discovery. Numenera Discovery is really the, the central core book for Numenera updated, the most updated version of the of the core book for Numenera. It is $20 PDF on DriveThruRPG. I think it's 50 bucks to get it in print. It is a gorgeous print book. One thing, so Numenera is a RPG developed by Monty Cook Games. Monty Cook in particular, lead, lead developer on it, but has a group, Monty Cook Games, that built the book. And one thing about Monty Cook Games, Numenera was a big, I think they're, I don't know if it's their first Kickstarter, but I think so. And it was a real big commercial success. Their first Kickstarter for this thing was a great big success. He he basically built Numenera right after finishing up his freelance work that he was doing for D&D Next. So this is about six years ago or so. And he did a Kickstarter for it. And he wanted to build a science fantasy world really built on like Arthur C. Clarke's idea that, that science that is unexplained is no different from magic. He really embraced that idea. And built a really top-notch RPG that I have played for, I played on and off little bits for a while, but boy, it's really good. And and I there are so many elements of this RPG I think are so well thought out that I really believe, like, let me, let me explain to you why I think it's my favorite RPG. I certainly don't play it as much as 5e, and I adore, I adore 5e, but there are elements to Numenera. They fit the Lazy DM style really, really well. I love the environment for it. And yeah, so I think I think it is my favorite RPG. So Numenera is a fantasy RPG, fantasy science fantasy RPG set in a an Earth that's one billion years in the future. So so far in the future that Earth has actually shifted its its distance from the sun, and now days are different. There is now a, a new supercontinent in it, and there are some number. I think it's nine. Some number of previous societies that have come and gone. So the current society. The, uh, is is a very sort of nomadic, just getting to the realms of civilization that is sitting on the backbone of nine previous highly advanced civilizations, which means you're constantly and continually discovering things that have existed that you cannot explain, that you that you cannot explain through science and understanding. And there are groups of people called like Aeon priests, which understand, which are trying to understand how the technology works. But what you'll, you'll, you'll have weird things like a, like a magical or not a magical, but like a, a, a weird floating disc that defies gravity that's being pulled by a pair of oxen, right? Cause they don't have an engine. They don't know how engines work, but they know that oxen can pull this. And, but meanwhile, they have this weird plate that floats four feet off the ground and no matter how much weight you put on it. And they're like, well, that's great. It floats frictionless. And, and we can we can use it to pull stuff, right? So there's a lot of stuff like that. It is a very optimistic, very optimistic world, right? It's, it's about, and the reason why it's called like Numenera Discovery is that the concept of discovery is more important than like beating monsters. There are certainly n huge threats and big dangers and all kinds of stuff in the world of Numenera, but really it is an adventure about wonder. And you've heard me, you may have heard me talk in the past about, how like the last couple of major hardback adventures from from D and D have been these like really brutal, like world ending kind of stuff. And if you think about it, it's like Tomb of Annihilation, Curse of Strahd, Descent into Avernus, Rime and the Frostmaiden. Right, four major hardback adventures that have come out are all like these. The world is ending, people are dying, you know, cities are getting drawn into hell, the world is freezing, you know, all these kind of like major dark themes. And there are dark themes in Numenera. There can be. But the general idea is is about wonder 
and discovery. And I think that that is really a, a great way to look at it, a great, a great angle to take. It's just really interesting. There's certainly lots of threats. There's certainly lots of challenges, but it's not built around killing monsters. It's, a built, it's built upon discovering things. So Numenera, let me, let me, I'm going to show the character sheet. The character sheet, there, there are different kinds of character sheets. Well, okay, so let me talk about like what you get. So with Numenera, so Numenera has a whole line of books, many, many, many books, adventures and source books and all kinds of stuff. It's got a great big library. I bet its library is as big as the fifth edition library. They put out a lot of material. They put out Numenera Kickstarters have come out for some time and the Kickstarters, the amount of money that they get from their Kickstarters leads to a big line of books that they create you know, that this company does and, and the, and the company's outstanding. Like they, you know, it's like five or six people and they, they, they build all of the stuff themselves. So they have like one major designer. So I talked about like the adventure where the machines wait by Bruce Cordell. Right. And, and it's by Bruce Cordell. It's by the one, a guy who's been writing adventures for 30 years, did it. So one nice thing about Numenera discovery is that it is an, the whole RPG is in this one book, right? It's a great big book, 413 pages, more than 413 pages. And it's 50 bucks, so it's not, it's not exactly cheap. But the entire RPG, everything you need is inside that one book, right? It's got how to get started, how to make characters, how to play the game. It's got a whole thing about the setting itself, you know, only like 90 pages about the setting. It's got a, a bestiary, you know, 50, almost a 40-ish page bestiary, a whole bunch of stuff about loot, a whole bunch of in, uh, good stuff about how to actually run the game. It's got a whole set of adventures, a bunch of different adventures, four, I think four or so adventures, or maybe... I think it's got, yeah, I guess it's got four full adventures in the book and then a whole bunch of uh, side stuff. So it's really like, think about like four books worth of RPG material in one big bound book, right? That like, instead of having a Dungeon Master's Guide, a Monster Manual, a Player's Handbook and a Book of Adventures, all of those are contained in one book for 50 bucks. So you're getting a whole lot for it. Not only that, but they have a starter set and the starter set has like a stripped down version of this where you can still have everything you need to play in like a 20, in like a $20 you know, a $20 print bundle and probably 10 bucks. I think, I don't know how much it costs, maybe 10 bucks. So I, I love it because of that. I love it that the whole book there, that said, I've got like half a shelf worth of books of Numenera stuff that I picked up. So there is a, there is a ton of material available beyond this for running Numenera, but let's take a look. One of the reasons that I love it so much is that I love the way characters are designed. And it's not for everybody, right? I guess I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that. So I'm gonna take a look at the Numenera character sheet. It's a little busy. There are different character sheets, but this, this, this is kind of the one that's in the book. So I'm gonna talk to this one. And characters are made up of sort of, characters are all built on three things. You have a character type, a character descriptor, and a character focus. Those three things put together define, define your character. So if we go to the character session, creating your characters, we'll get into the stats in a second, but we'll, we're gonna start with the type, focus, and descriptor. There are three types, and type is as, like, as close to you as you can get to a class. A glaive, which is sort of like a big fighter. A nano, which is like a spellcaster type. Lots of glaive stuff. A nano, which is sort of like a, think about like a mage, a wizard, or a cleric, right? They're sort of the, the spellcastery type. But nanos actually aren't casting spells. They have figured out how to tap into these ancient worlds of technology that exist and modify technology in order to do things that look an awful lot like spells. And so the glaive, nano, and the, the last one is the jack. And the jack is sort of your rogue, your very generic rogue, right? Because the jack isn't about backstabbing. 
the Jack is about exploring. It, it, it fits more that idea of the skill rogue, right? So they are, they, they are the, they are called a Jack because they're often the Jack of all trades. So the neat thing is when you build these, so, so, so you have these three character types, you know, are you a glaive? Are you a Jack? Are you a nano? And those are sort of the bulk of a character, right? They, they're the ones that grow with levels. Level wise, I think they call them tiers. And there are six tiers. So you can actually stretch it out and get pieces of a tier as you gain levels. If, you, if you're running a campaign and you want it to go a while, you can, ins instead of giving like jumping tiers like you jump levels in D&D, you can give a piece of a tier each time as they grow up. And then after they get like four pieces, they jump to the next tier. So you can create like a 20th level system out of this, sort of a 16th level system out of this if you want. But you don't have to, right? So... It's a neat way of doing progression that captures that idea that like we, you know, you hear often that, that D&D like doesn't ever get past level six. If you want to run a fast one, you just have them jump an entire tier, right? So those are your types. And then you have descriptors. And a descriptor is sort of like, you know, an adjective. Charming, clever, intelligent, learned, learned, rugged, stealthy, swift, strong, strong-willed, tough. Those give you sort of a an angle on your character build. Are you a strong glaive or are you a swift glaive, right? And it changes like your attributes. It changes your skills that you'd be trained in. You know, it, it changes. This is, it's not quite your origin, right? In fact, there isn't really an origin. There's nothing that's like the equivalent of race. All the characters are sort of defined differently, right? But this gives you that like that angle on you, on your type. You know, are you a, are you a strong glaive or a tough glaive? Are you a strong nano right and they don't they you, you can pick any anyone can fit with any other one so you don't it's not like well you know the strong one fits whatever you, know, you could have a stealthy nano or you could have a stealthy glaive you know it fits it fits well so there's a number of those in here and of course the extra books have have more of these right they have they have more different things so it's it's obvious that you might want to be like the learned nano but not necessarily right it's okay to be to be kind of mixed up the art Oh my God, the art in these books are so awesome too. All of the books, all of the art from Numenera, I think is, is top of the line. It's some of the best, it, it may be the best art I've seen in any RPG. And then last you have a focus and there's a lot of, a lot of foci and a foci is sort of like, almost like a one unique thing. It's like, what's your weird angle that your character has? Bears a halo of fire, commands mental powers. And these are pretty crunchy, right? There's a, a fair bit of these things that you've, that, that you've got here. Controls beasts controls gravity there's also a lot of these so there's a lot of them and they go up with tier just like your just like your type does which means you have two angles uh that your character progresses on you you, you progress with both type and you progress with focus and when you mix these three together a neat thing about the way this works is if you mix these three together you have i don't know hundreds of thousands of possible class builds and you have it or, or character builds and you have it all in one book right there's a lot of, I don't know if it's hundreds of thousands, it's a lot, right? Explores dark places. So that makes character creation crunchy, right? It's not totally, you know, just story focused. It's crunchy, but very versatile. And it means that with a small page count in a book, they can offer up a wide range. So imagine if like uh, character is, imagine if you had classes and you had uh, subclasses, but the subclasses weren't tied to the class. Imagine if any subclass could be taken by any class in D&D. Imagine how many variants of characters you would have. That's kind of what they've done here. So I really dig that. I dig being able to create, have a whole bunch of different crunchy systems. Hey, look, there's like a shark man with bare hands, right? Howls at the moon hunts. 
you can see there's tons of these, right? They just they go on and on. All these different ones, murders. You know that the you know you're a stealthy nano who murders. Yikes, scary rages, right? Rides the lightning. Very evocative. And and what it gives you is a story that like you know my character is a glaive is a is a strong glaive who murders, right? And it gives you this sort of one sentence description that you can read out loud and in world kind of makes kind of makes sense, you know. I am a learned jack that rides the lightning. You know, really, really neat stuff. So that's how you build a character. And then, so then you have like the equivalent of attributes. And the equivalent of attributes are basically three stats, might, speed, and intellect. And you build your might and your speed and your intellect by looking at your type and your, not the descriptor, but your focus. Your type, oh no, I guess it's your type and your descriptor determine what your, what the attributes are going to be. Your might, your speed, and your intellect. And it gives you a number. Now, the might, your might and speed and intellect aren't a stat. They are the equivalent of a pool of points. So you have so many points in might, so many points in speed, so many points in intellect, and they act in two ways. And this is where I get a little, you know, where, where it's not, it's one of the things I kind of don't dig. And it's one of the things where, yeah, other people have not dug this system is that you use your points here for two things. They are both how you apply effort to a task and the damage that you take. They are, your, they are your equivalent of hit points, right? So, and, and when you take physical damage, it starts with might and then it goes into speed and goes into intellect. So you actually have a lot of points here, especially at first level. But the idea, some, the, the criticism is, why do I have to eat my arm in order to do a power attack, right? And that, that kind of makes sense. And, and it, makes, it makes sense when you think of it that might is not physical damage, it is a mixture of, it, it's your overall, you know, the overall amount of endurance that you have. And that swinging your sword really hard is gonna use up some of your might, right? And so it kind of makes sense, but people, it, it ends up building a, there's definitely a, there's, there's a couple problems with it, but, but one of them is it, it offers like a sunk cost problem. You feel bad spending points that you know are actually your hit points because you want to generate something. It's, a, it's an elegant system in this idea that you don't have to have spell slots, you don't have to have some other resource pool. You just have might speed and, you know, might speed and intellect and you burn those to do things, right? And you can do a lot of different things with them. But there is this idea that like, you know, oh God, I spent it. And the example is, in, in, in uh, you know, I'll, I'll talk about where this can be a problem in one of the ways that, in one of the ways where this can be, where, where, where how you can use it. So there are two other pieces of might, uh, of, of these stats, which are your edge and your, what's the other one here? Uh, I can't read it. Your pool and your edge. So the, the pool is how many like you've spent, right? When, as, you, as you've expended them, you, they go into the pool. But then you have this thing called edge. And edge means that your character is particularly good at spending from that pool. So when you spend it, you actually spend less. So the example is, let's say you have to spend three might points in order to do your power attack, right? Well, because you have an edge of one, you only have to spend two, right? Or if you have something that it spends a might point in order to do a thing, but your edge is one, that means you get to do that for free. So your edge is based on your type, I think, you know, it's been a while since I read this, right? Uh, your edge is spent on, is based on your type. And then as you gain levels, as you go up in tiers, uh, it, your edge increases, right? So you get to the point where things that normally require effort suddenly don't require any effort anymore, right? You can just do them. And that, that is pretty particular. But one of the ways that you use might, so, so the core mechanic of Numenera is rolling a d20, right? 
rolling a d20 and looking at a difficulty ladder. So very similar to the way D&D does it, right? But the way that difficulties are done in Numenera is with a thing called tiers. Let's see if I can find, oh God, I just froze my. So there is a, a, a difficulty ladder. Let's see, running the game. I think that's in here. Let's see, maybe it, it might be in how to play. Yes, so there is a task difficulty, which is on a scale of zero to 10, right? A zero is really easy right? doesn't take any, anybody can basically do it all of the time. Eating an apple is tier zero. Fighting an elder evil that has been drawn from another world, you know, or pushing it back into its plane with just sheer will is like a task 10 and is basically impossible. This task difficulty ladder of zero through 10 turns into a target number, which is three times the task difficulty. So a task difficulty of four has a target number of 12, right? It's three times the amount. That would be considered a difficult thing. And it kind of shows you trained people have a 50-50 chance. The target number is your DC. That's what you're aiming for when you roll a 20-sided die. <clears throat> Instead of adding modifiers to your roll, you change the task difficulty by, by increasing it or decreasing it a step. And the way that would work is if you say, like, I want to swing my glaive at this armored opponent and you say, well, OK, hitting him is a task difficulty of four, i.e. a 12. You could say, OK, I'm going to expend some might to lower that task difficulty. And you might say, I'm going to expend three might to lower one step. Right. That's the step difficulty, which takes it from a four to a three. So now your target number is only a nine. Now you might have other abilities too that also decrease it another step. So let's say you're already really good at hitting things. So you already decrease it a step. So it would normally go from a 12 to a nine, but you say, yeah, but I want to take that down to a six. So I'm going to, I want to decrease it another one by expending some might and really hitting this guy. And that drops it to a six. Now you only have to beat a six or better on the D20 roll. So what's cool about this is, and, and Monty Cook talked about it in his design documents, is that this is a way to ensure that the focus of your attention is on the die roll and the answer on that die roll. You're doing all of the math before you roll, and then you roll to see what you get. Uh, Professor Dungeon Master talked about doing this in D&D, that if you can do all of the math up front in D&D and figure out what the target number is, you can just tell the player you need to roll a six or better, and then they roll and they get it. And there's this really nice thing about rolling a die and not having to do any math after the die is rolled. You've already, you've already done, did the math and now you roll. Monty Cook kind of wired that into the whole, the whole resolution mechanic of Numenera. And I really like that. I think it, it works well. It's cool. The one area where it kind of gets in the way is that if you say something like, well, you know, I'm trying to attack this armored opponent. I already, I'm skilled with my glaive. I'm a glaive who's skilled with fighting with a glaive. And I'm stabbing him with it. So I already take the task difficulty down one. So I know the, the difficulty is nine, but I really want to hit him because nine is almost a 50-50 chance. So I want to lower it another step. So I'm going to expend three might points to lower or two might points because you have effort, right? Or you have, you have an edge. So you're like, I'm going to expend two might points and really hit him hard. And I'm going to knock it down to a six. And you go, great. And then you roll and you get a 17. And you're like, well, why did I spend those might points, right? Like big, big whoop. So there's actually this almost this moment of disappointment where if you overshoot the roll, you feel like, damn, I wish I hadn't spent the points that I, that I spent, right? High numbers can actually look like a disadvantage because you spent points to lower the number. It's, it's, it's almost like bless, right? Like if you, you know, there's that sort of bless sadness that clerics get where, oh, I bless the characters and they, they keep rolling high and it, the bless never mattered, right? It, it, they, that extra D4 never really happened because they're always rolling 16, 17, and 18s anyway. You, you can get that across this whole game. 
and you just kind of have to get past it. I think that that's a detriment of it, but the advantage of this like move everything around till you do the role, I think is really cool. So I, I really like that idea. Now, expanding on this a little bit, this is one of the reasons that I really love Numenera from a DM's perspective is every threat in the game, whether it's chasing a jackrabbit across a mechanical jackrabbit, jackrabbit that has a little antenna on its head across a field or pushing an elder evil back through a, uh, a rift between worlds using your sheer force of will. All of that comes down to picking a number between zero and 10, right? As a DM, I just pick a number. I say, well, how hard is the elder evil? I probably say, well, that's like a, a nine. That's going to be really hard, right? And then I know what the target number is, 27. And if they're going to do it, they're going to have to do a bunch of stuff to get that number down to the point where they can actually do it, right? And I can build a monster on the fly. I can build any creature on the fly with nothing but this task difficulty number. Any creature in the game, if I wanted to have like a cyber demon, right? I'm going to go right into my doom phase and make a cyber demon. And I'm going to say a cyber demon is a challenge six monster. It's intimidating, right? It's really powerful. The target number to hit it is like an 18, a six. It means it has 18 hit points. It means that it inflicts, eight, it inflicts six points of damage. Like that one number can turn into... It's armor class, kind of, it's attack, it's damage, it's hit points. All of the things that I need in order to make a threat, I can pull off of that one number and do all on my head. I find that fascinating, right? I think that that is really cool. Now you can tweak it and you can make monsters that have like, they're good at some things and bad at other things and yada, yada, yada. But if I need to improvise, I can just drop that one number and, and, and use that number. And in my head, I know my cyber demon is a task six monster. It inflicts six damage. It's 18, you know, it, it, to defend against attacks requires an 18. To hit it requires an 18. I know what all of the numbers are, right? In order to have that monster do its thing. One other interesting angle, the DM never rolls dice in Numenera. Everything is always pushed to the player. So when a player is getting attacked by a monster, they roll a defensive check. If, the, if they're attacking the monster, they roll a check. Anytime the monster does anything to them, they are, rolling, they are rolling the checks. Some DMs are like, but I like rolling dice. Yeah, I get it. Trust me, you have lots of stuff you can do in Numenera. Uh, a big one is, oh man, what do they call it? They have a special name for it. The GM Intrusion. Right, the GM intrusion is the idea that a, D, a, a GM can make something harder, change the circumstances, do something that makes things harder, and they drop this thing called an, a GM intrusion card, and that's how characters get experience, or it's one way that characters get experience. And essentially, what happens is when you do a GM intrusion, you hand two experience to the player who's getting affected by it. They can take one of those and hand it to another character and say, yeah, but my friend over there is helping me out. And both of them get experience and both of them deal with the situation that's there. They sort of draw a friend into the problem. And that is a way, imagine that, a, imagine that in, in a 5e circumstance that you could grant your monsters advantage by handing inspiration over to your players right? That's sort of how that works. Experience points handed out this way can serve two purposes. One is a player can use it to re-roll any die they've rolled, kind of like advantage, a little bit. It's after the fact, but they can, you know, they can re-roll in order to get it, or they can hold on to it in order to level up their character. Four, four experience points gives you like one step of your tier, which is another problem because why would you, why would you burn a resource that could also give you a permanent boost, right? There is a nice house rule for this that you essentially have two pools. You have experience points that you gain that level you as a character, and you have experience points that you can use in order to re roll dice rolls and if i was playing it i would separate the two out because i don't want players to have to make the hard choice of 
do I, I, I want to level, I want my character to get better, but I also want to reroll that roll, right? So I would play with a pool of both. But that is, that is kind of an interesting angle on it. What else do I want to talk about? I, man, I've, I've covered a lot of material on this game. Obviously, I love it. I think it's fantastic. This is why I love it as much as I do. And I, I just, it, oh, uh, yeah, one other thing I'll mention, which is like items and ciphers. They have ciphers in Numenera. I stole the idea of ciphers right out of Numenera and threw it in my D&D game, and it works great. Ciphers are single-use artifacts that have a powerful effect on them. And in the book itself, it has many, many different kinds of ciphers. Look at it, like it's got almost 100 different types of ciphers. And all of them have levels that they can have, sort of how good they are at these things. Some could be weak, some could be strong. The cool bit is like as a DM, I could just roll randomly and pick them and throw them out there. There's a lot. This game is really, really lazy DM friendly, right? It's, it's, it's hard because the whole world is so weird and unique that it can be hard to know how to describe things, right? Because it's like, we don't have a metaphor to fall back on. Like with D&D, like I've been playing D&D for 40 years. I know how to describe an ogre, right? But like some of the monsters in here, like how the hell do you describe that thing? So that's where like the adventures that they come out with are really useful because they give you a lot of material to say, oh, that's what Numenera is like. It's almost good to get published adventures, including the four that are in here, because they tell you what the world is like. They tell you how to describe things. They give you ideas, even if you're building your own. But yeah, so ciphers are a really cool way. And this is, this is what they, they describe in the book as give players broken things. Give players things that are, that are way better than they are, because that's kind of the way Numenera is. You discover something that's completely outlandish that you wouldn't expect but they can only use it once right or very few number of times and you can see that they have like a d6 for the levels d6 plus two for this cathalon cathalcon cures any disease it has how good it is and it might be a three or it might be an eight right and those level like an, a level eight cathalcon is a really good one right like think about it that means you know it's gonna work really really well so, you know, detonation, right? A wrist brand projector, it's an explosive device thrown, it blows up, you know, and it's got a level, right? And that level could be really high. So, yeah, so this is a, the site, the whole system of ciphers is a really cool, uh, really cool addition to the game. And then they have permanent items called Numenera, which are like really powerful magical items that your characters can get and that last that lasts forever. So I really, you know, that it just adds to this whole idea of ciphers just adds to how DM friendly this game this game is. Another thing I like about it, combat wise, ab distances are abstract. You have one, this is what I think is probably the my favorite action system, which is you have you do a thing. On it's your turn, you can take an action. As part of your action, you can move around, right? But generally speaking, you you take, uh, let's see if I can find the combat section here. Da, 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 da. Get you the character setting, playing the game, rules of the game. It must be under player and playing the game. Yeah. Every character on your turn, you can do a thing, right? One action, an action. And actions are cool. Actions fall into categories. So when you do an action, you're doing a might action, a speed action, or an intellect action, typically. And they have difficulties that you apply, blah, 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 blah. But as part of your action, when you're in combat, you can move. And the, uh, the distances when you move are abstract. This has the whole thing about, yeah, distance, right? The distances are immediate, short, long, and very long distances. And so different devices will have things that are short, medium, short, long, or whatever. And, uh, you know, I, if, you, if you're familiar with me, you know that I prefer abstract distances to fixed squares. So I really, I really like that. There was another angle on this I was going to mention, but I don't remember what it was. Oh, yeah. So one thing is like crit. It has crits. It actually has like a range of crits. Be oh, ugh. 
man, so many things. You don't roll dice for damage, right? Damage is a static number for both characters and for both characters and monsters. It's a static number, but that number can change uh, depending on the d20 roll. So if you roll like a 17, 18, or I think it's like, or if you roll like a 17, 18, or 19, that gives you like a plus two. If you roll a 20, it's like a plus four or something like that. I don't remember the exact amount, but basically you do more damage if you roll at the top end of your die. And that's really, that's really cool. Which means that like you can play this whole game, I think with like a d20 and a d6. It does have the equivalent of healing surges. You can basically heal four different ways. If you look in the character sheet, it's down here in the recovery, one action, 10 minutes, one hour, 18 hours. Everybody sort of has this equivalent of the, the healing surge, not the healing surge, what do they call it? Is a healing surge for fighters? Where as an action, you can give yourself a d6 and recover any of any one of your stats with like a d6 and then you have sort of the one action 10 minutes one hour 10 hours right and once you've done all four then you need to take a full rest but that lets you recover points and you can recover some points really quickly the more points you try to recover the longer it takes so the whole system is just really really elegant right and one thing that's neat about it is it's been around for six years and they've had i don't think they've had any changes to the core rule set. I think they changed a little bit of the nomenclature that got people tripped up. But generally speaking, the, the, the system runs the same way that it has run for the last six years. And it is just, it's just solid. It's just a great, it's a, it's a great, great system. I think I've talked this to death, right? Yeah. I talked for like 30 minutes about Numenera, but you wanted to know about why I love Numenera. And those are really the reasons I love Numenera. I love its optimistic, high science fantasy environment. It just feels cool. The artwork is absolutely outstanding. The system is really well refined. Character creation gives lots of crunchiness without having to have a lot of different options. The rolling system is really cool. It's very lazy DM friendly because you can improvise a lot. Like Monty Cook knows the importance of improv improvisation and has built it into the mechanics of the game. The whole like build anything with just a flat D with a flat target number of zero to 10 is a really elegant way to do that system. All of these things together just tell me that like, you know, it's a fantastic system. I absolutely love it. If you don't dig the Numenera world and then you're crazy, you know, then that's, you know, that's wrong fun. But let's say you didn't, right? And you want to run out other, they have the cipher system has a, uh, a book that's just the cipher system and it applies to any genre. And in the book, it has all different kinds of genres that you can play. So you could actually use it directly with D&D &D if you wanted to. I, I like the idea of having a system and a, and, a, and a world tied together, right? So I love Numenera, the world, and I love the system together. And I think they were built together well and they work well together. So with that, I will stop and say that the last 30 minutes or however long I've spent on this is why I love Numenera as much as I do and highly, highly, highly recommend it. If I wasn't playing 5e as much as I was, I would be playing Numenera like crazy because I, I love this system. So Jason, Jason S, I hope I answered your question because holy cow, that was like the longest review I've ever done. But I've been, I've been thinking about playing this game for a long time. Well, we'll go through a couple of Patreon questions today. I don't know how many I'm going to be able to get through. Let's go back to our Enclave question. Victor N., asks, do you ever experience a sense of regret or disappointment after DMing a session? I often feel this because I forgot an important detail or a fun game mechanic, or I had to improvise something important and I ended up not working as well for the story. Maybe my players don't know what they missed, but I find it frustrating. Do you have any tips for dealing with this? So yes, I do. In the same way that I feel nervousness before every D&D game that I'm going to run, I also, on occasion, not always, certainly less often, feel that like, oh, that didn't quite go as well as I wanted. I, I, I try not to beat myself up. One thing is like, 
I think some of this regret come from come from I prep things that didn't get used, right? I think people can certainly feel that. But certainly it's like, oh, I had this really cool idea for an NPC and it didn't work out. Like I had this big backstory for this NPC and I thought it'd be really cool and it didn't work out. That can happen, you know, events go a certain way. I mean, not every game is great. Like you, we certainly have bad games. I have bad games. I run games that don't go well at all, right? And I, and, and I think we can do the same sort of thing that we, ahead of time where we feel that sense of nervousness about running the game, which is like, take a step back, look at the situation analytically and say, is it, do I just feel this way or did it really happen, right? And if it did happen, well, what can I do about that? How can I make it different? Can I, you know, in some cases, like, is there a way to retcon things a little bit so that it can go, you know, you can sort of use this thing that you thought was going to be really cool and didn't, you know, are there, you know, how do you, but, but I think that idea of kind of stepping out of yourself for a minute, stepping out of your feelings for a minute and looking at the situation and trying to, trying to understand it, trying to look at it, trying to say like, okay, well, what, you know, is, how do I, how do I fix this? And if you, and maybe it's just like, well, it happened, what happened, happened. The future is the future. Time to worry about the next game, right? That's something I recommend. Or if there's a way that you can kind of shift things around, maybe you bring a location back in later. The location didn't go like I expected. Maybe there's a way for them to come back here later, right? So it really depends on like what happened. If you, you know, I've run it where I've run boss monsters and I forgot an ability that they had. I forget. There was a point where I'm like, I'm pretty sure that I forgot lich abilities every time I've ever run a lich. And I feel bad because it's like, how many times in my life am I going to run a lich? And yet every time I forget, an important characteristic because liches are turns out liches are really hard. I think liches are probably the hardest, one of the hardest monsters to run. So like, yeah, you just, you, that happens. Right. And, and you think about, you know, you, you got to take it and, and do your good Bayesian, like, okay, what was the base rate and how did this new evidence change my base rate? And now where do I go in the future? Like, what does that mean in the future? Right. And so you, you learned a little something, right? Think about it as a learning opportunity. I learned a little something and now I can take a note and I can remember like, ah, this is something I need to think about. Oh, they completely paralyzed my boss monster because I forgot about legendary resistances. What can I do about that? Right. Uh, why are liches the hardest monster to run? I think they're the hardest because they have the most, they're, they're very high CR, they're important, they're legendary, and they have like a huge array of potential things that they could do because their spell list is enormous. So it's really hard to run a lich right. They also can be delicate. So they could be killed really easily, right? And if you're not managing liches, this is why I have like multiple articles about how to run liches. I have a YouTube video about liches. I have an article on Sci Flourish about liches. You want to be careful running a lich because like, if not, like your paladin runs right up to it and smites it twice and it's dead, right? And so, you know, you really got to think about like how to protect a lich, how to make sure it's not going to get ganked, how it's going to show off its power, but also not just kill the characters outright. Because liches on the flip side, they could be, they're really, really like they are the glassiest cannons of glass cannons, right? They could be killed very easily in the wrong way because I don't think they have a lot of hit points, right? Do they even have 100 hit points? They have 135 hit points, but they're CR 21. 130, a paladin at tier three and into tier four that's fighting a lich could probably one-shot it, right? If you think about it, if they get one crit, if they blow their big smites, they get those extra, un, they get the extra radiant undead hitter stuff. This could really, 135 hit points could could go down. Certainly, 
imagine your fighter, your rogue, and your paladin get initiative before the lich, right? Even though the lich has legendary actions, its legendary actions aren't that, it, like it's got no movement here, right? There's nothing about moving. If it's sitting in a chair, they're going to run up and kill it, right? So a lich could get killed real easy. On the other hand, it's got like power word kill, power word stun, finger of death, disintegrate. It's got these, these spells that can completely wipe people out if it hits them the wrong way. So liches, that's why I think liches are the hardest creature. So... Play, yeah, if you find it frustrating, try to step away from your frustration. Try to, you know, I'm, I'm offering advice, but you did ask the question. Try to step back. Think about what, think about what happened. Is it real? Did your players care? If not, and then, you know, forgive yourself, right? And hey, we're all, we're, we're all fallible. Forgive yourself and, and step away. So I hope that helps, right? I think I, I, I do feel that. I think it's a common thing that we feel that regret when we run something or something didn't quite go. Most of it is because we prepped something that didn't go like we expected. And that gets into the whole, like, don't prep things that, you know, are, are going are gonna to make you feel bad if they don't work. So I hope that that, I hope that answered the question. Derek G asks, how, did, how does a DM handle instances where NPCs are talking to one another without boring the players? It's a good question. I've heard this come up too. Of course, it's a good question because guess what? I only put questions in here that I think are good questions. I would not have conversations between NPCs. If I did, keep them very brief. Another way is to step away from the role-playing of it and just describe to the players what they overhear between the two NPCs, right? Step out of the characters and just dump the dump whatever the result is. You overhear the two guards talking about the fact that the king likes to, you know, the, the king has a tryst across town and he likes to sneak out on his own and do it right? Bang. You just say it instead of having like two NPCs talking to each other. This is also a good reason that you probably don't want to have NPCs that hang out with the characters a lot. <laughs> I really don't like having NPCs hanging out with the characters unless they are magic items because they stay out of the way. But you just, you know, we, we want to keep the spotlight on the characters, which means we don't want to put too much spotlight on NPCs. So I try to avoid situations where NPCs are, are talking to one another. I certainly don't like it when they are hanging out with the players, with the, with the player characters. Uh, often in having conversations. But another way I think is to kind of summarize how that goes. So quick answer, quick answer to a quick question. I would, I would step away from, you know, one option, I'm just offering thoughts, right? One option is step away from the actual in-world role-playing conversation and just give whatever information they were going to acquire by listening. And then another way is just don't do them that often. <laughs> Meek B says, I know improv is a super valuable skill, but what do you do when the players do something totally unexpected and you have nothing prepared? So this happened to me. I had a, my, my players were going into Sunblight Fortress in Rhyme and the Frost Maiden. And the book basically says you go in through the front door. There's no other option in the book other than the front door. But the map does mention that there is an Underdark. There's a connection to the Underdark. And I mentioned it to the players, right? And the players said, oh, we're definitely going in through the Underdark. And I'm like, and in the book, I think it specifically says, this area is beyond the scope of this book. So it offers zero about what could happen for them going through the Underdark. And I'm like, well, the Underdark is kind of a special place. I kind of want to be able to make it special. And I've got nothing. So what do I do? Well, we'd already played a little bit. We'd already played like an hour and a half, you know, or so. I, I think we played maybe up to two hours. And I said, you know what? I think I'd like to call the game here. I know it's early, but that's, you know, I would like to go. I would, I, I would like to call it here. And we did. And, you know, we're playing online. So it's not like people had to, you know, drove for nothing. But it was an opportunity for me to say, I'm going to make the Underdark thing special. And I made that Dwarven Forge setup that you saw, right? Was part of the, dwarf, was part of the Underdark side. So I, I got to spend more time between sessions because I knew where they were going to go. The cool bit is they had made the choice about where they were going to go. And I knew they were headed that way. Now I'm ready to prep for my next game. Cause I already have, I already know where they're, I know where, where they're going. 
So I, I don't think it's uncalled for, particularly if you're playing online. Ending early is not terrible. If, if it's really early and they went away direction and you don't want to call off the game, what do you do? And I say, like, often what I would do is I'd say, can we, let's take a 10 minute break. Everybody F off for 10 minutes, go get a cookie. And I'm going to, and, and then grab some random tables, right? Grab stuff and, and grab a quick map and throw stuff on the map and come up with something to, you know, can you improv something in, in 10 minutes? You know, hopefully between various tools that you've got, the Dungeon Master's Guide has a lot of tools. Lazy DM's workbook has a lot of tools. My upcoming book, The Lazy DM Companion, will have a lot of tools. Lots of different ways to help generate ideas so that you can build out what you what you need to build out. And, you know, and you only need to fill so much time, right? You're Hopefully, you, you, hopefully it's not like your characters went left when you thought they were going to go right in the first 20 minutes of your eight-hour Saturday morning marathon session because then you're in a bad, bad way, right? But if you're doing like a three hour game and it's hour two, you know, you could probably improv some stuff, you know, come up with an interesting location, come up with an interesting encounter that might not be a com might be combat, might not be come up with some, you know, have your secrets and clues and drop those secrets and clues, you know, really, you know, see, see what you can do there. Right. But yeah, take it, taking a break for 10 minutes and coming up with some stuff. You could probably improvise a 45 minute scene pretty quickly in, in, in 10 minutes you're probably not going to be able to improvise three hours in 10 minutes, right? So, and in worst case, call for a break. Ken B asks, do you have lore continuity in your version of the Forgotten Realms? For example, if a character becomes a hero and they manage, uh, they mentioned in a future campaign in the region or if the NPC, yes, I absolutely do this. Uh, and I love doing it. So I will even do it. I have my head realms where one group did something and that that has affected all of the groups, even for other groups that have never done that, right? And the example is like, when I ran Horde of the Dragon Queen and Rise of Tiamat, that event happened, right? And for the group that did it, that event happened. And in every version of the realms that I've run since, it has come from that. Same way with like Descent into Avernus, I think, probably. And I will certainly draw in, so like the events of Out of the Abyss have occurred and are occurring during my Rime of the Frostmaiden game. I've, I've seeded in things between these two. I like to have events, but probably the biggest one is that the Horde of the Dragon Queen, Rise of Tiamat stuff that occurred, that that, that ended up being like a, a, a major point of the story for Storm King's Thunder, for Tomb of Annihilation, for Horde of the Dragon, uh, not Horde of the Dragon, for, for Waterdeep Dragon Heist. Those all had an effect on it. And then even little pieces, every ancient or adult dragon knows about the events that happened in Rise of Tiamat, right? And so the idea that like the ancient dragon that's in Rime of the Frost Maiden was actually supposed to be there, but was too old to really help out in the rising of Tiamat at the end of Rise of Tiamat, right? That can be part of the effect. And it's fun for, for DM, even if the players don't ever really recognize this. It's fun for me as a DM, even, yeah, the players might never really see these answers, but it's fun for me as a DM. One of the things I really love is that most of the people of the Sword Coast think that the cult of the the cult of the dragon and the rise of Tiamat was a giant Ponzi scheme, right? That it was all about rich people stealing money from poor people, and rich people got snookered by this, you know, Bernie Madoff style guy who said, "Oh, I'm going to raise up the I'm going to raise up Tiamat, and we'll all be worshippers of Tiamat," and he just stole the money. Right. And like everyone's convinced he stole the money and a bunch of like rich nobles don't want to talk about the fact that they lost all their money back in the stupid cult. Right. And then a bunch of towns are like, yeah, we all got stolen. 
right? But the idea that like the average farmer just thinks that, oh, look, rich people stole money from poor people and other rich people stole other people from money from other rich people. And that Tiamat never actually rose. Well, the reality is, yes, no, Tiamat almost did rise. Tiamat was in the plane for a little while till the adventurers kicked her ass and sent her back into the abyss. I sent her back into the nine hells. I like that. I like that angle, right? And I like to drop little hints of this throughout. And my players know because they like they know about the adventures. Even if they didn't run it, they know about it. So they they enjoy that too. So I, yeah, I love... I love to do that, and I love to drop in these little hints about the stuff that happened previously. I think that Waterdeep Dragon Heist is excellent because it's a way to show that there was like a half a million gold dragons that had come from the horde of the Dragon Queen, but was trying to get embezzled by Lord Neverember and got stuck in Waterdeep. And now the, all these different groups are fighting for it. So the fact that that money is there, that money actually belonged either to a bunch of rich people and who cares about them, but also belonged to a bunch of villages that are now struggling. And one of the motivations for the characters can be, let's try to get that money so that we can move it back to, so that we can move back to the villages who lost their money when those stupid Cult of the Dragon showed up because Neverember was supposed to do that and he never did. I think that's a really fun angle on that whole, on that whole adventure. So yes, answer that i hope you enjoyed today's episode of the lazy DD talk show it was great fun to do as always I always appreciate having everybody hanging out with me today to talk about all this stuff and if you enjoyed it if you enjoyed this show there are four things you can do to help me out first you can subscribe to the sly flourish newsletter second you can subscribe to my youtube channel on youtube third you can support me directly by going to patreon.com slash flourish and becoming a sly flourish patron you and, and you can throw questions my way like this and maybe they'll come up on a show four you can pick up any of my books including return of the lazy dungeon master the lazy dms workbook and things like that and also a fifth you can keep an eye out for my upcoming kickstarter coming september 28th for the lazy dms companion the third book of the lazy dungeon master series thank you all very much and have a great day.